Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 38 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 21st of October. Uh, and Leon, we're talking to Nigel Lester of um, Pitney Bowes. That's right. Nigel Lester is the uh, managing director of Pitney Bowes uh, Software Solutions for Australia and New Zealand. He's going to be talking to us all about the use of location data in business, which is really interesting. It's Yeah, it's really getting good. It's part of big, the big data picture, really. And then after that, we've got Nicholas Gruen and a very interesting topic. All about uh, how to deliver welfare services effectively and without hurting the budget yeah particularly without hurting the budget at this point so let's listen to nigel lester nigel lester there's an old saying about location 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 but it's no longer applies only to real estate does it and pitney bowes been in business a long long time male you know franking and stuff like that been around for what a hundred years yeah so um pitney bowes we like to think of pitney bowes as a 96 year young organization so an organization yeah that started in the in the physical world really around mailing as you mentioned Gary but um, really our business has been through a transformation ourselves over the last um, sort of 15 20 years where we've really seen that convergence between the the physical world and digital world and how organizations communicate interact and understand their customers more and location really big part of that sure and this of course we can see the Pokemon go phenomenon and you're involved in that yeah, so for us, you know, Pitney Bowes' um, interest in the phenomenon around Pokemon Go is really around um, the amplification it's really having around the interest in location-based data. So one of the things when you think about um, the physical and digital world, location is that common um, denominator that brings together those two two distinct worlds. And that's really where Pitney Bowes um, plays a significant part. You know, we're a, a major data supplier for over 240 countries around the world. So, you know, as um, organisations um, start to embrace more and more around location-based um, applications and way in, uh, ways in which engaging customers and consumers underlying location data is really critical to that. The, the critical question, though, is for businesses, how do they take advantage of location-based data? So when you think about business data, you know, it's commonly referred to as that 80% of business-based data has a location um, component to it. So it's really that, um, you know, stores have a particular location, um, houses are insured at a particular location, customers have a, a place where they live or where they work. So, so it's really that, that location-based information, but how do you unlock it? And it's using technology allows you to take that, you know, tech textual address information and then convert that into a into a point on a map and then actually start to analyze that information intelligently and on the flip side when you've got applications like Pokemon Go that's collecting information out in the field you know with real consumers real life real time data actually converting that back into something that's readable from a from a business's perspective so taking a latitude and longitude and converting that back into real address information and what we call geo enrichment adding additional data to that location information that you've collected out in the field so it could be demographic information store locations particular uh, other data aspects that the business never actually had themselves so it goes it can go almost anywhere kind of it could draw you a map of the state of health of a community or almost anything couldn't yeah, it? Yeah that's right I mean when you look at the clients that Pitney Bowes works with currently you know we have a vast array of different sort of organizations from social media um, organizations that you know use check-in capabilities 
through to the likes of Domino's Pizzas that uses location-based data for ensuring that you get your pizza hot, right? Making sure they're putting the stores in the right locations, that um, mobile ordering is being directed to the correct store and then the pizza is delivered to the correct location. Um, through to state state and federal government organisations, organisations like Queensland Police that are using mobility out in the field and collecting um, location intelligence about a particular offenders, um, etc., um, and providing that in real time. And also uh, organisations like insurance and, and banking organisations, in particular insurers, you know, want to understand where the location is of their business data because it's you know there's a financial cost to them. They need to understand the distribution of those policies that they're um, insuring and understand what a potential loss could be if there was a disaster in a particular location. So location as I mentioned at the beginning, is really that common thread, you know, between a whole lot of business problems and business opportunities uh, for organisations. So where does Pitney Bowes comes in with, have you mapped the 240 countries? Yeah, so we work with um, a, a real um, network of partners and local um, data providers. So for in, for ex- in Australia, for example, there's a public sector mapping agency, government agency that we work closely with. What we do is we take a lot of that raw uh, location-based data and build it into a usable data set that makes sense for business so that they can incorporate that into their operational systems. So a business wants to, say with Domino's, when Domino's got with you guys, did you give them a software package and bunch of instructions how did that work what it really is it's with with, um with um clients like dominoes what it is is really a combination of software data digital data so when you think about it really digital maps and then you know some uh, professional services to integrate that into their business processes so it's really a combination of those three things going and buying location data on its own without being integrated into some software of some kind is really like going and buying a data inside a spreadsheet it's not really usable it's really the software and the smarts that brings it together but the key for the business is that they would need the expertise inside to be able to analyse this location data. You know, and, and I think that's a change that we've seen over the last, you know, I've been working in this location industry for almost 20 years. But what we saw is now more and more location and location intelligence becoming more and more mainstream. Where in the past you may have had a specialised department that was responsible for geographic analysis. Um, it was kind of a bit more of a propeller on the uh, hats of people in, in, in the, you know, 10, 15 years ago, now location intelligence is becoming more more mainstream. So people inside marketing organisations are talking about location. People inside the, the CIO, the CMO inside organisations are starting to now think about how do I utilise location information to make better business decisions. But that's because GPS has now become much more mainstream. You have it everywhere. GPS, but availability of the data and the the software technologies evolved a lot so now you know we can provide location-based what we call geocoding services so being able to locate an address on a map in these 240 countries around the world so we've worked with some really interesting organizations like I, i'm sure you've heard of wise tech global uh, one of the great um, new newly listed organizations on the um, australian stock exchange um, fantastic um, software as a service logistics provider and they're using our technology for pinpointing physical locations all around the world to help their customers deliver parcels more effectively. So now, how granular can you get? Because you go to DJs and Maya and the big department stores overseas, um, they're using iBeacons. 
Yeah. Which again is a location it technology, is. isn't it? Store. Yeah, yeah. So you guys can tap into that? Yeah, so what we do a lot around is um, down to the physical address and then into store and integrating with those type of systems. Um, also the thing, the ability to create things like geofences. So putting a, a, a boundary around a location, for example, a store, and then when a consumer with a mobile application moves into that location, near that location it'll send an alert and prompt them with potential offer to draw them into the store similar like the way that pokemon's going with their um, different types of pokemons or pokemon gyms and lures to attract people to particular locations so you know location intelligence from a a marking perspective i think is the the next frontier really around marketing because the mass marketing approach uh has limitations and i think is a is a a a much more targeted way organizations can go with them the marketing now using location would it be fair to say that the big sector that would benefit from this is retail particularly retail and uh, restaurants yeah definitely i mean um it goes across all industries but i think from a b2c perspective that type of analysis that can be done and and real-time offering through using location i mean everything happens somewhere and people um get it being giving an offer to someone at the right time the right location very importantly gets a much better conversion rate so the data come, can come off that say the number of meetings with an eye beacon or the number of meetings with a cafe restaurant and so forth can be drawn out and used to form a pattern of public behavior definitely definitely and one of the things is, is when we talk about big data and then starting to analyze and and understand patterns inside that if you actually start to analyze the location information inside big data as well it gives you a new insight into that that information and allows you to leverage it a lot more than what you maybe haven't been able to in the past so it gets to be very valuable, doesn't it? I mean, you get a, a mass of data on the number of people who go through the front door of Meyer every day. That's a very valuable oh. thing in marketing in all sorts of areas. Yeah, and, and these are these are assets that these organisations have, you know, and, you know, how do you leverage that and get the best value out of it? And I think if organisations think about more about unlocking that location value inside their data, there's got real um, revenue benefits on, you know, and bottom line benefits for their business. And how far down the, say, the retail food chain can you go? Uh, Can you go to a small, medium, sort of a small shop that might be in a high traffic area? Would they benefit from your technology? Definitely. We have, you know, um, franchise type uh, organizations that are rolling out to individual franchisees um, that are using location-based technology to help them understand the market, help them drive traffic to their particular stores. So it goes across all levels. I think there's different marketing strategies that different types of um, SME and you know larger enterprises will, will employ. But I think that all organizations have a real opportunity in using location even if you are purely a digital storefront actually understanding the types of people and where they're located and where they're buying from and where you're shipping to is really great intelligence right because one of the things is it's it's true through you talked you know that location location in location but one of the other things we talk about is uh, birds of a feather we still flock together right we tend to all live you know in similar areas and you can start to we provide segmentation data to analyze the types of people that live in particular areas if you as a a digital storefront can understand and segment your customers more effectively you can target run marketing campaigns to target um, your high performing you know potential consumers in new particular areas and new markets and we do that where we are able to segment customers in Australia and we use a similar segmentation system so you can compare customers all around the world so that would also touch the buying side of retail as well as the selling side wouldn't it because it would show you where the public taste is going yeah definitely definitely yeah yeah yeah. and what's next Nigel where's where's Pitney Bowes going now 
I think the um, really exciting um, things that we're working on at the moment is how we integrate location more and more into the customer journey and and the 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 conversation because a, a big part we in Pitney Bowes we talk about identify we have customer management tools that help us identify individuals in a single customer view we talk about location or locate which is around our location intelligence technology and data and then we our third pillar is communicate so it's really about how do you identify locate and communicate with your customers more effectively and one of the really exciting areas that we're working in at the moment is around interactive video and providing location based interactive videos to consumers to help organizations better communicate, understand, make offers to their their customers. It's a wild, wild world, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's exciting. It's exciting. Nigel Lester, thank you very much for your time and fascinating. My pleasure. Pitney Bowes is an old, old company, isn't it? It's, uh, what, what do they say, 99 Nin- years? 90 years old, something like that. Years. And they've segued into all sorts of things. They're now very, very expert data managers and this sort of thing. Well, this stuff about uh, B2B uh, location data is really interesting. It's where the way business is going, all the way from knowing what street somebody's walking down so you can sell them an ad, using an iBeacon inside a retail shop, and then combining it all. Very good. Now, uh, Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, you have a view about the delivery of welfare services uh, and its impact on the economy. Tell us about that. Uh, We're engaged in a fairly substantial review. It began with the Harper Review of Competition and has gone on to a Productivity Commission review, which is based around the idea that we should introduce more competition into government provision of of, of welfare and human services. So that would include health, education, but also... Uh, the kinds of services that government departments like family and community services deliver, which will often uh, involve things like child protection, domestic uh, uh, services to to uh, try and prevent domestic violence and all, all manner of things. Uh, it, it struck me as kind of odd that the Harper Review would make this a major, the idea of opening these areas up to competition that the Harper Review would make this a major theme of its report only because I don't think any of the four people on the Harper Review really knew anything about the subject. Uh, they were doing they were doing a big review on competition policy between firms, you know, between Wool- Woolworths and Aldi and uh, Westpac and Bank of Queensland and so on. And then they said, wouldn't it be good if uh, there was more competition in human services? And, of course, in a sense, you know, if you can play that economist trick and say all other things being equal, why wouldn't it be good to have more suppliers? The answer to that, I guess, is that, um, you know, if if you can make that assumption, uh, fine. Uh, But you can't really make that assumption. And more to the point... I think it's the wrong question. I'm certainly not trying to defend lots of these areas uh, where I don't think human uh, service delivery is particularly good, but asking can we uh, introduce more competition is a kind of dumb economist's question, and there are lots more important questions to ask, which is some of the things that I've been trying to pay attention to. Well, surely the more important question is not about competition, but how do you make delivery of welfare services, human services, more efficient? 
Um, well, I would say more effective. I think it's quite useful okay. there to distinguish between efficiency and effectiveness. So an example I use is in at the beginning of the 18th century, the British Navy uh, had two problems. One was that uh, late at night and during the fog, they kept bumping into continents, which doesn't do your Navy much good. And the other was that after a couple of weeks at sea, the sailors started dying. Now, you could say that the British Navy could have benefited from more competition and that would have given it more efficiency at doing what it did. Uh, and it's true, but that's a, that's a second order ben that's a second order gain. And what you really needed is you needed to solve those problems. You need, and so those are efficacy problems, not efficiency problems. And human services is really mostly efficacy problems. Um, once you know what you're doing, yes, it's worthwhile trying to focus on efficiency, but most of the time we don't know what we're doing. So to give you an example, in one of the state bureaucracies, there was work done on how to bring about a situation where children who had been removed from their parents for abuse and, neg and neglect were reunified with their parents. How do you work out when you should do that? How do you work out whether it's working? How do you work out, you know, do you, do you draw a line after three months, six months, three years or whatever? What we found was not only did the department not know, but over a period of time, one of the units in the department worked out how to do this job a lot better than anyone else and nobody knew and that that unit got closed down because there was a new departmental enthusiasm that's entirely common and i'm sure you listening to me speaking now and any listeners to the podcast will be <laughs> nodding their heads not very surprised at any of that uh so those are the kinds of things that really need attention and uh, I think there are ways of thinking about those things where we can do a better job than we have. What sort of model can we bring to human services to increase the efficacy of it? Uh, about six months ago, I wrote an essay which, which argued for developing inst an institution which I called the Evaluator General. When we were setting up modern government in the 19th century, we developed... Um, new independent institutions. The most obvious example is the Auditor General, but in the Scandinavian countries, they also developed the Ombudsman, which we then copied from them in the 1970s and on. I think we need to do this with what I call the Evaluator General. Now, let me be clear that when I say Evaluator General, you can see why I'm saying that. I'm trying to tap into the constitutional notion of something like an Auditor General, but it, 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 it wouldn't work if it worked like an Auditor General. An Auditor General is a sort of checking and compliance outfit to a substantial extent. What I think needs to happen is a ser there are a series of things which we need to try and do. Firstly, we need to know what we're doing. Remarkably, to a substantial extent, we don't. We can't tell you, for instance, which of the child protection services in the various states and territories work better than others in terms of the important outputs of child welfare and so on. Obviously, we can add up some numbers like how much they cost, 
uh, and divide it by the number of kids. But that's that's ridiculous. That's really not helping. So firstly, we need to actually show some discipline and curiosity about whether these programs are working. Then we need to build monitoring and evaluation systems and there's a couple of really important points. The first point, uh, the first point is that if those monitoring and evaluation systems are built by senior managers uh, in, or in an exercise of surveillance over their workers, guess what will happen? The workers are the ones who will fill in the forms and the information will be corrupted. So we have to do what Toyota did with its workforce in the 60s and 70s, which is to make the workers, make the people in the field or on the line at Toyota and in the field in a, in a social working operation uh, like child protection, make, uh, make the monitoring and evaluation really work for them, really be a tool for them. And then, but at the same time, we have to play a kind of a trick at the same time, which is that we still want that information to be independent. And that's where... Uh, my idea of an evaluator general would come in. So what would happen is the Department of Family and Community Services or whatever it's called, in, they're called different things in different states, it would deliver these services, but as part of the delivery, some of the people in the delivery unit would be, would be experts on monitoring and evaluation and they would help build monitoring and evaluation systems and of course, they would co they'd collaborate closely with the department delivering the services. They might be part of that, that that process, but they would ultimately report to the evaluator general, and that evaluator general would be a separate department and would report not to a minister but directly to parliament. So the advantage of that is is twofold. One is that it keeps the information as independent as possible, and two. It enables a situation where, subject to privacy, that information can be published. It can be published in real time. It can be published in a very rich form. And that way, we can learn who's doing what, what's working well. And it's in an environment like that that you might then be able to open up things to, 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 to external services because you could uh, open it up and see how things see how things went. So that's the idea uh, I don't. I'm not suggesting it should be kind of rolled out throughout government. It should be piloted to see if it if we can make it work. And uh, those are the ways I think we could attend to the efficacy of these systems, which is pretty awful. Rather than fuss about whether we can take a few few nickels off a few people, which comes with all sorts of of hazards. And which will ensure that we get more efficacy and bang for the buck for the budget that we spend on these yeah, items. Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately, if you save 5 or 10% on the costs of a system, that's one thing. If you ma make, uh, you know, half the kids who are abused and neglected functional human beings, uh, you're going to save a vast amount more money over a period of time, something that the New Zealanders are showing a lot more interest in with what they call their investment approach to welfare problems, which is they don't just look out for four years of outlays, they try and look at whole lifetime exposures to risk. If somebody's on welfare, they ask the question, how long are they likely to remain on welfare? And if they've been abused and neglected as a child, they're worth about $100,000 more liability than if they haven't. 
and that's just welfare. But think of the children that those people will have because about half the people who are, who are abused and neglected are from parents who were abused and neglected. And, uh, and so the process goes on. So if I'm right, then this would work for a really big company like GE or something. It'd be kind of interesting to know if any big multinational companies have sort of nibbled in this direction in any way. Nicholas Green, again, thank you very much for your time. That's fascinating. Thanks. Thanks very much, Leon. So what do you think, Leon? Well, I think uh, improving the efficacy of welfare services is really, really critical. But I have to agree with him. Uh, you know, you can't have issues like competition applied to w delivery of welfare services. You need something else. And uh, his model is interesting. You know, you, you, you develop a similar model to what was used for Toyota. Yeah, exactly. You work, you work with a segment of the population. You work with a corporation. But it's basically the basic principle is the same. Okay. And now the news. Gary, the Chinese economy expanded at an annual rate of 6.7% in the third quarter of 2016. Now, that puts it on track to meet the government's target of 6.5%. A lot of it was driven by property and easy credit. In September alone, property investment expanded by 8.4%. The issue is that China's growth momentum remains property-driven, and the market concern is that the rate could fall as officials try to cool an overheated property sector. Yeah, in a sense, it's all about Chinese gambling. That's right. That's right. What was interesting was the Australian dollar slipped slightly after the release of that data. And the Australian dollar is seen as a proxy for the health of the, health of the Chinese economy because China is Australia's biggest trading partner. Yep, that's right. It dropped down to 77 something. It, it? Dropped, it dropped down well below uh, well below 76. And now it's, now it's up uh, 77. 77 again. But it was interesting to watch. Now, Gary, the British government is looking at plans to keep paying billions of pounds into the European budget so that Britain's banks and financial services sector can maintain access to a single market. And this is happening at a time when the markets are sending a message to the May government about Brexit. The pound has slumped to record lows since the Brexit vote in June. It's now trading at $1.22 in the wake of speeches at the annual conference of a Conservative party, signalling a hard Brexit. Now, the big concern of markets is that Britain's push to control its borders would see UK-based banks and insurers losing the passporting rights that allow them to trade freely in Europe. Now, British Prime Minister Theresa May has not ruled out Britain making future payments to the EU to secure access for its financial services sector and several ministers are now saying the cabinet is now considering Britain paying money into the EU budget and the payments into the EU could be just the beginning because according to the Financial Times last week leaving the European Union could cost Britain as much as 20 billion euros and most of that divorce bill is tied up with a shared budget with EU nations such as joint financial obligations in the form of commitments to fund infrastructure pension pledges and contracts so it's just, you know, and the pound is heading south. Yeah, that's true. Um, 20 billion is a lot of money, but uh, in a way, politically, the Brits just want to get rid of the bureaucracy in Brussels and the immigration that's thing. That's right. That's the issue. Uh, look, the Brexit vote was never taken with economic imperatives in mind. It was all about immigration. It was all about sovereignty. On the other hand, a pound at $1.22, it can't be bad for car makers and other industrialist manufacturers in the UK. In the end, good for exports. That's right.
Yeah, and there's some suggestion that, uh, say, Michael Hintz, for example, this week is saying uh, Brexit in the end, after the agony, will be good for Britain. That's what he says, yes. Yeah. But we'll, we'll take a look and see what happens there. Now, uh, Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe has signalled the RBA's concern about low inflation and wages growth. Uh, in his first public address as Governor, Dr Lowe flagged the possibility of further rate cuts in response to lower-than-expected inflation. He was speaking at Sydney's annual Australian and New Zealand Investment Conference in Sydney. He said the RBA's interest rate cuts in May and August were in response to low inflation, which was expected to remain low for some time. He said headline inflation is 1%. Measures of underlying inflation are running at around 1.5%, which is well below the RBA's target of 2 to 3%. And he forecasts that inflation in Australia will eventually pick up over the next couple of years, although it's likely to be closer to 2% than 3%. And that said, he didn't seem to be in favour of severe rate cuts to fight low inflation. But uh, I noticed economists like ANZ's head of Australian economics, uh, Felicity Felicity Emmett said Dr Lowe's speech pointed to rate cuts being more likely than rate rises. Although there's not a lot of fat left on the bone, is there? No, no. And the Reserve Bank of Australia, in its minutes from the uh, RBA board meeting, indicated the future of interest rates will depend on next week's inflation data, which is being released on October the 26th. Now, uh, Nick Xenophon has flagged he won't support the government's 10-year plan to cut tax rates for all businesses, large and small, to 25%. And the government has to win over nine of the 11 votes on the Senate crossbench. And the nine are crucial, with the Greens ruling out supporting the proposal and Labor backing tax cuts only for companies with revenues less than $2 million. Now, the Nick Xenophon team holds three of the nine votes and Nick Xenophon told ABC Radio that tax cuts for companies earning up to $10 million were a fair thing, but cuts for larger businesses were, in his words, not the right priority. Which drew a retort from the BCA, Business Council of Australia, that South Australia can't survive or rise on small business. This is going to be quite a critical issue and the government's 10-year tax plan does not look good at the moment. Now, the Turnbull government's plans to pass two Key industrial relations bill are in doubt over change to the Family First Party and crossbencher David Lanholm insisting the government lifts an import ban on the hyperlethal Adler lever, lever action shotgun to win his Senate vote. Now, the union-busting bill seek to re-establish the Australian Building Construction Commission and establish a registered organisations commission which will impose higher standards of regulation on union officials and employer associations. Now, Turnbull and Justice Minister Michael Keenan took most of a day this week to make it clear that there'd be no deal over guns, but that was only after the ALP zeroed in on the government in Parliament claiming it was set to do a grubby deal watering down the gun laws John Howard introduced after the 1996 Port Arthur massacre. Now, Senator Lionhelm said he was still prepared to talk, but he made it clear the government had made it more difficult to get his support for the ABC seal bill. At the same time, Family First has to replace Bob Tay, the coalition's strongest supporter on the current Senate crossbench, and he resigned following the collapse of his property business. And uh, you really have to question, Gary, how can a property business collapse during a building boom? Well, Bob Day said that he should never have bought Huxley Homes. He was just debt-ridden. That's right, that's right. Well, he bought a family business and that's what happened, yeah. And uh, one of the contenders to replace him, his former Chief of Staff Ricky Lambert, says he'd support the bill, but his rival Family First South Australia MLC, Rob Brockenshire, says he won't be a rubber stamp and he's demanded a full briefing about the merits behind the legislation. So I reckon uh, these two pieces of industrial relations legislation are in doubt. The, the other thing is I think Lionholm is uh, pushing a, a snowball uphill on the gun law. The just idea of automatic or semi-automatic uh, weapons coming proliferating in Australia is just anathema. Yeah, indeed. And, and well, that's going to be, it's a politically hot issue. The point is too that it's going to make it much harder for the government to get through its industrial relations bill without his support. 
Yeah, and then there's the added uh, problem of uh, Tony Abbott, who's been on the uh, public television. Also, I think, probably trying to wedge Turnbull. Absolutely. Indeed, that's his agenda. It's a nasty, grubby operation. That's right, that's right. Now, the Turnbull government's legislation intervening in the country fire authority dispute and protecting volunteer firefighters, which passed the Senate in a late-night session last week, will be challenged in the High Court. The Firefighters Union is launching a constitutional challenge, and that will extend this dispute, which forced out a state minister, seen the CFA board sacked, its chief executive out the door, and put pressure on Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews' leadership well beyond this fire season and well into 2017. Now, the Turnbull government passed the changes to the Fair Work Act last week with the support of the One Nation Party, making it unlawful for any enterprise to undermine volunteers, and the legislation tackles a dispute involving the Country Fire Authority, which is a largely volunteer agency, and its board was concerned that an Enterprise Bargain Agreement hands too much operational control to the union, which has angered volunteers who make up 97% of the workforce. But the union's case in the High Court will be built around the question of state rights and the Commonwealth restricting Victoria from determining its workforce. And the CFA's got a lot of clout, particularly in uh, regional and rural Victoria. Now, Credit Suisse says Australian profits will start climbing again after hitting rock bottom in a note to clients. Credit Suisse says profits will be picking up again and will be heading towards a bull market with the ASX 200 grinding higher to 6,000 by December 2017. And much of what Credit Suisse calls a profit recession over the last two years was the result of the mining downturn and falling commodity prices hitting resources stock. But all that is changing. Commodity prices are stabilising. Lunar companies are starting to make bigger profits. But Credit Suisse says the growth will be modest. While the combined earnings per share of the ASX 200 is down 13% over the last two years, Credit Suisse is forecasting single-digit earnings per share growth over the next year. So let's just watch that space. Now, Crown shares nosedived this week after Chinese authorities detained 18 of its employees, including the head of its international operations for high rollers. And the share price dive also hit Sky City Entertainment and Star Entertainment Group. And in a note to the market, Crown confirmed that its executive vice president, VIP International, Jason O'Connor, was one of the 18 detained. Now, according to Crown's annual report, more than one third of a company's revenue at its Australian resorts in Perth and Melbourne in the year end of June was generated by international visitors, mostly from China. Now, Gary, casinos aren't allowed to advertise on the mainland China, but Crown can still promote tourism and resorts on Macau, where its casinos are located. And the share price dive, I think, is a sign that investors are worried the Crown might have to shut down its direct VIP marketing operations. And Chinese leaders have linked overseas gambling to corruption, money laundering, domestic instability, because many Chinese gamblers have gone broke and been small business owners. And that means other casino operators around the world will be vulnerable. And that's hit uh, gaming stocks right around the world. It all goes back to the decision of the Australian government, which had been lobbied by Crown, to introduce express visas. So you could get a you could get an answer on a visa in 48 hours, provided you were paying $1,200. That's right. That's the key to it. Chinese are very worried about that. I bet they are. Because a lot of money is leaving the country. Now, Tabcor and Tats have announced plans to create an $11.3 billion gaming behemoth. And with the national footprint and product offerings in waging, wagering, media, lotteries, kino and gaming services, the merge entity will generate revenues in excess of $5 billion. Now, under the deal, Tats shareholders will receive 0.8 Tabcor shares plus 42.5 cents for every Tats share held. And Tabcor and Tats are merging to take bets on horse racing, greyhound racing and sports across Australia at a time when online rivals such as Bet 
365 Group Limited are moving into the market. And the merger is expected to be completed in mid-2017 following shareholder and regulatory approval. And when it's wrapped up, Tabcor investors will own 42% of the combined group and TATS investors 58%. A couple of old names, aren't they? That's right, that's right. But it has to get through the ACCC and the ACCC is not that sure about it. But on the other hand, you've got very big international betting companies moving in here. So you've got to do something about size as well. That's right, that's right. And finally, Gary, Caltex Australia has confirmed it's made Woolworths a conditional and confidential offer to buy Woolworths fuel business. Now, Caltex is the exclusive supplier of petrol and diesel to Woolworths, generating annual sales of 3.5 billion litres a year. And Woolworths last month said it was looking to sell the petrol business, which is worth about 1.5 billion. And of course, Woolworths is looking to exit fuel so they can focus on its supermarkets in the price war with Coles and Aldi. That's true, but naturally, the Woolworths discount on petrol will have to stay as part of the deal with Caltex, uh, because otherwise Caltex's gallonage would fall. And that's it for us this week. And uh, Gary, next week we're talking to Steve Munchenberg from ABA. Yeah, all about the Australian Banking Association. That's right. That'll be fascinating. And uh, in light of all the inquiries and uh, all the uh, call for uh, a Royal Commission into banking. Yeah, which the banks don't want. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.